Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a full-service media agency servicing networks, studios, brands, and Fortune 500 clients. One Circle creates content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com or DM me on Instagram at John Brancaccio. And that's J-O-H-N-B-R-A-N-C-A-C-C-I-O. I'd love to hear from you. One Circle not only creates media across multiple platforms such as TV, digital video, social media, websites, and apps for clients, but we also create original content for consumers. One of our latest projects is Still Believe. Still Believe is an app that transforms pictures into video of children's favorite magical characters in their home. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy leaving money under their children's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film virtual effects artists to transform your picture into your Still Believe video to amaze your children. You can tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the Tooth Fairy and Santa and then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes and you can then save it to your phone and share on social media. The app is free to download and also has in-app purchases. So for $3, you can catch the Tooth Fairy in your home. The Still Believe app is available for the iPhone on the App Store and Android on Google Play. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience. On this episode, I sit down with Darren, a former iron worker who helped build some some of the most iconic buildings in New York City. Really interesting conversation, uh, Darren. He's uh, he's quite a character. Uh, and he also, um, throughout the years, um, in between jobs, he had a side hustle where he would break up uh, counterfeit vendors on the streets of Manhattan. He was kind of like the, uh, the getaway vehicle, uh, working with um, former cops and firemen. Uh, interesting story. I uh, hope you enjoy. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on the... Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? Man, HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. To stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that He was living his toenails at his desk. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience. I am sitting next to Darren, 
and Darren's going to talk about his life experiences and work experiences in the various jobs that he's had throughout his life. So right now, uh, Darren is retired, a retired uh, iron workers union. So Darren, just say hello and, and tell us uh, tell us a little bit about you know you're so you're retired right now. Yes, yes. Hello, by the way. I'm retired from local 580 Ironworkers, um, International Union, located on 42nd and 10th Avenue. And so how long did you work, uh, work there? Approximately 25 years from 1983 on, and I got injured in 2004, 2008, I'm sorry, October 24th, 2008, working on City Field. Okay, so, so that's interesting that you worked on City Field, which is... Um, you know, the home of the Mets. So what was that like? Well, I actually requested to go there. Um, I actually turned down Yankee Stadium because I'm a diehard Mets fan. <laughs> and the choice to be homeless and employment <laughs> wasn't that, that severe, but I am a diehard Mets fan and they, it worked. They sent me to City Field. Great. So just for our listeners, explain to them... You know what I, I mean. I know from a layman's perspective that you worked in construction, but give us more detail. Were you the so an iron worker? I'm I'm assuming was soldering iron to build the structures. Why don't you explain exactly what you did? Well, first of all, it, it starts out as an apprenticeship program from 1984 to 1987 when I graduated. Anywhere between stru- steel structure staircases metal frames, outside curtain wall of buildings, uh, wrought iron, fancy trim work, whether it be brass, iron, or any kind of metal for that matter. Um, basically it's ornamental and structural iron. We're one of three locals that are major, local 40s. It's one in Manhattan, 361's Brooklyn and Queens, and of course we're local 580, all the, all the boroughs. Okay, so I've, uh, just a little bit of backstory. So I've known Darren for 20 years, maybe? That'd be right? Probably, yes. More than that? Maybe maybe longer, maybe longer. Maybe maybe more than 25 years. And um, I've been meaning to have Darren on the podcast because he's got got great stories. He's a great storyteller. So Darren, just from your years of working, um, what were some of the craziest things that you saw on the job? And I'm assuming that you've, all the jobs were in, kind of in and around Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn. Um, just, just give us some like crazy stories that you experienced firsthand. Well, I mean, there's many of them. I mean, one, uh, one I can remember vividly is being a young 18-year-old line worker, apprentice, first, first job or second job, I don't remember, but... I remember six to seven iron workers, journeymen, in their 50s, late 40s. Of course, I'm 18 years old. And I'm, obviously, the young man goes for coffee and gets donuts or whatever they, whatever they want to eat. And I was told to get a six-pack of beer for a few gentlemen, probably Friday morning. <laughs> and in, in the morning? In the morning, yes. <laughs> and I was told by the supervisor, and the owner wasn't too far, too far behind, that don't ever bring alcohol to this job, no matter what the men tell you. And even the men that weren't drinking assured me that if that if I had trouble, they would A, 
throw the owner and the supervisor off the job by their <laughs> pants. True story. Or they would all quit and walk off the job with me. And they meant it. It, w it was no doubt about it. 1984, different times in construction and for most trades for that matter. But I was shaking in my boots as the bag was leaking in the elevator. And the supervisor looked at me, probably know, knew in his heart that he, he, he could either bust me or let it go. And he chose to let it go for that morning, but I, I never forget, forget that day that I thought I was busted. But that's, that was the norm. That was the norm. So by you bringing beer in the morning, now I'm assuming this work is done um, you know, high up on skyscrapers. Was, did the men care that they would have a couple beers and maybe feel a little tipsy while they're you know, hundreds of feet off the ground uh, welding steel together? Um, I tell you the truth, it was, it was different times. I mean, a couple thousand feet up in the air, out on a scaffold, 42 stories up in the air. And I remember men, back then it was only waist safety belts. They didn't have the full harnesses like they have now. They would actually throw the belts back in the supervisor's faces and say it was, they feel uncomfortable wearing them. <laughs> 42 stories up in the air, swinging off the edge of the building. They didn't want any part of the safety equipment which you would be brought up on charges nowadays, let alone losing your job if you refused safety equipment. Um, did you see anyone Did you see anyone die or get really badly injured? I've seen people fall off scaffolds, hanging by their harness, but pretty banged up. And it's part of the trade. I mean, firemen, policemen, they all have risks. We know the risks, but even back then. And but we 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 had the training available even from even from early times of 1983 when I first started, and that saved a lot of men with the training in the back of their heads, even though they were careless at times. You know. And so, how did you get into this work? Was this something that was? Did your father do this, or uh, it was college police department, local one elevators, my father's union, and local 580, which he had a lot of friends. That got me the test. I still had to take the test. But as I was taking the written exam, I was hit in the back of the head by one of the business agents, a friend of my father's, obviously, and told me to change a few answers. <laughs> not, not proud of that. I scored high pretty well anyway, but right. that's, uh, that's unheard of in today's day and ages. You know, you, you don't, they, don't, they don't make you, they don't let you uh, erase papers and return new ones. You know. that's, so what, what are some of the buildings around like some of the iconic buildings around Manhattan or Brooklyn and Queens that you were that you oh, helped build. Uh, worked on the Brooklyn Bridge. That's usually shared by local 580 and local 40 and 361. So like a shared, the bridges are pretty much up for grabs for a lot of locals. Um, World Trade Center, before the first bombing, I would say 1988, 89. I was there. Um, Rockefeller Center, a little interior work. The Umbrella Building, Travelers Building, downtown. Um, the, the whole Trump West Side Highway, I was on a few of those buildings. Trump Tower, Bergdorf Goodman, male and female. We put the bronze railings and bronze fixtures up there, very fancy. And quite a few buildings over the years, quite a few. Spent a lot of time downtown, mostly in Manhattan. Um, again, I, like I mentioned earlier, City Field, and eventually, ironically, I did go to Yankee Stadium after that. I mean, before, about, about, before I got hurt, I was in City Field working, and they sent me to Yankee Stadium for, for, 
for a week. I remember being upset about having to take the train there and stuff, but great stadium. I've been back many times. <laughs> being disabled, I've been back many times because I get great seats for my friends, but yeah, it's, that's one story that I vowed never to go there working, and I did anyway. But overall, in, in, in the 25 plus years I worked, I, had, I wouldn't trade it for the world. They talk about in the bold, brave, defy department, police department, sanitation, they have all slogans. And I gotta be honest, I, I think we're all that combined. I remember getting the call to go down 9-11 and we, we didn't get paid. I, I, I ran down with a bunch of firemen in my truck that I was able to park nearby and um, got turned away. After a couple hours, I came back the next day. I spelled, spent 16 hours. And that's, that's one major setback that even though it didn't affect me two years later, that's one thing I'll, I'll do all, all over again if I had to do it again. That's the training and, and pride and camaraderie we had as being a local 580 member. So, so talk a little bit about like this camaraderie, like this brotherhood that you... So I'm assuming that this is... Um, this feeling is derived from the fact that it's a very dangerous job. It's yes. like similar to, you know, the military, the police, the firemen. You guys are all like going in together, and there is a, a significant risk of, of dying. Right? You yes. could you could see your best friend fall off, you know, a scaffolding forty two stories up. Yes. So so talk a little bit about that, about what that was like, and you know, the lifelong friendships and all that good stuff? Well, pretty much, my, I remember my first day on the job, Maiden Lane, 1984, after, after a couple of weeks in the apprenticeship program, they sent me out on my first job. And basically, I remember they handed me a few t-shirts, and a, I think back then it was a burgundy jacket, but I had a green t-shirt with man on a beam, and, and I remember a few trades yelling out, hey, local 580. Had nothing to do with me. They just see my shirt and my, the hair stood up in the back of my neck. That's how proud I was to be a member of the union. And I remember my first day on the job, I won't mention his name, but Billy, he was a foreman, out on the scaffold trying to show me what to do. I don't know, with a little bit of showing off. Beer can in one hand, <laughs> went to grab the railing in the second hand, missed, and almost, almost fell backwards. And the, he would have how, been pretty banged how, up. How high was he up? Oh, six stories. Oh. I mean, I don't know if the scaffold would have saved him going down, but he would have been banged up if not dead. And that was my first job. I mean, I don't know what would have happened if I would have witnessed that my first day on the job. I don't know if I would have <laughs> stayed on, but he, he luckily he grabbed, he dropped the beer can and grabbed the other railing with his hand. And, and that was my first experience of almost seeing somebody fall and getting hurt very badly. You know? Wow. So... Um, you were with the union for 25 years. Yes. And so this... Actually, 29 years, but 25 physical, and then they, they counted some years as I was hurt. At the time, My time went along with my injuries, but physically, 25 years, that's, when, that's my length of time. But 27 years probably vested in the union. And so, so, you, were, so you were injured on the job, just... So I think that happened at City Field, right? City Field, uh, yes, like October 24th, 2008. 2008, so just, just tell us what happened. Well, basically, not to make, not to make light of or, or throw stones at anybody on the job site, but the job was basically unsafe. 
I mean, I fell in a small hole, but there's everything I twisted up, my back, both my knee, my left hip, I had multiple surgeries, and a few injuries before me. The guy fell off the scaffold. And basically, the site safety manager, they were showing everybody around, movies from movie stars or other sports stars, it seemed like they were more busy showing them around and keeping the job safe. They did the best they could, but there were parts of the job that should have been controlled better. Even though I worked there many months before, um, I should have known, I should have saw it, but it was so unsafe. Unfortunately, I was one of those guys that, that got injured. Um, just, to, just to touch base on that a little bit, I remember taken out by ambulance. I remember the site safety manager called me up personally. I don't know who gave my number, telling me come back to work two days later. The boss will pay me for the day. My leg was frozen, I couldn't move. It was bandaged up, I was getting ready for an MRI. And he told me, oh, the boss don't pay for MRIs. And I know my boss, he, he, you could be a double broken leg and he won't pay you. So basically, I went to get an MRI and I barely tore a knee and, and, um, and multiple back problems. And luckily I was able to walk, but I had left knee surgery, back surgery, metal rods in my back. So they wanted you to just come back to the work site? Yes, just to cover themselves, you know. Hobble back and, you know, and then once you're back to work, I don't know how it works, but, but supposedly it's not good if you go back to work injured. Um, and I never, I never took a day off injury in all, in all the years before that. I would bandage myself up, band-aids, ace bandages, ice, crutches, you name it. I would never want to be known as an injury-prone guy because we had plenty of those guys that would trip over a pebble. Right, and right. I, I vowed never to be that guy. And this time I was actually injured badly to the point where even though I was in my 40s, it's old enough with enough time that I had in that I wanted to make sure that my knee was at least stable. And I, I remember felt feeling bad about going for the MRI, but if I didn't go for the MRI, I would have had major damage. And the way I like to work, it would be unsafe for other workers, let alone myself. Right. People don't seem to realize is that if you drop the material, you get injured or kill somebody else. And that's the, the selfish part of certain people that work injured. And just like sports stars, they work, they work with injuries all the time. But it comes to a certain point where something I had to do, and I, to this day, I, I, I miss the action. And um, I travel a lot, but help my family and stuff. But basically, the, the camaraderie and, and, the, and the togetherness that you feel with that union even to this day, I miss it. I'm sure other trades and other unions, police department, fire department have the same, but each one's a little different. I, I recently read a book called um, Tribe where they, uh, the author uh, went into detail about how um, you know, the military, the Army, Navy, they come back from war and they actually get depressed because they miss the camaraderie of being, being around their other soldiers. Um, so I'm sure it must be a similar thing where, you know, you live that life 25 years, yes. you form bonds with these guys, and then all of a sudden it's over. Yes. So, um, so when did you, at what age did you enter the uh, union? 18, I took the test. Um, it's a funny story how I got the union. It's kind of like baffling, funny, and kind of kooky at the same time. 
you had to be 18 years old to become a member of Local 580. And I remember being 16 years old, taking a test. And I, mean, I don't know if I'll ever get striked down for saying this, my father happened to know a priest that was drinking in his bar day. He was bartending, <laughs> selling baptismals for $25. So I, thus I became 18. No, I became 17 when I was really turning 16. And I got in the union at a year younger, which I wouldn't, wouldn't have otherwise. So wait, the, wait, he, he altered, he doctored your birth certificate? Well, I, I legally became a year older <laughs> under this baptismal certificate that was signed oh, by a, a priest. Oh, it's a baptismal certificate. Yes, that is which funny. was needed to get in the union. At that. So basically, to joke all, over the years as I was working, it was like, oh, you get to retire a year early. Yeah. Or we're going to tell on you when they're going to throw you out of the union. <laughs> and it turns out I got injured. So, you know. But the, back, to, back to square one, the joke was on me because it was 40 people per class per year, and I was number 41 on the list. So I just missed by one. So six people dropped out, but they went over me. Right. I grabbed six people. I don't know, high differential, race, I don't know what the... What, what, the deal was, but it was like poetic justice. I had to skip a year anyway, even though I was number one on the list, because basically I wasn't even old enough, but they didn't know that. On the certificate, I was 18, right. I was really 17. Right, 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 right. So I could end at the right age at 18 anyway. Yeah. Uh, but just the way I got into you, and it was, it was kind of it was kind of like the norm. I mean, I mean, if you had family members that hung out in bars or social clubs, I mean, without your college education, that, that's, that's how you went to work. If you didn't take the fire department, the police department, it was all about connections of who you know. Wow. So then let's go back to what your life was like growing up. What was, you know, what was your first job? What was, what was the work ethic that your parents tried to instill in you? You know, were you delivering newspapers? Well, I, my first job ever, Poppy was 15, 14 years old, 15 years old, but my first hustle, if you want to call it, was shoe shines, made a shoe shine box at maybe nine years old in Woodside, Queens, New York. And if you wanted to call me a deaf mute back then, that was my title. I wouldn't say two words to anybody. Now try getting people to have the shoe shine when you, when you can't talk. You know, it's kind of hard to sign language that. You know. Right. So my friend Danny Dowland, if I can mention his name, he would make like $15 a day, a lot of money in the early 70s. You know. Right. Um, I made about $9 a day, which was plenty for me too, even without saying two words. So Everybody you, wears sneakers now right. in bars, but back then, shoe shine, that's a hustle. Laundry mats, people right. would drop their cords, we'd roll under the machines. Right. We would go in there and stick our hands in the, in the dirt and the mud. And Sometimes we'd get two or $3 a day. Wow. In 1975, a lot of money for yeah. a kid. Yeah. So would you set up your shoe shine box like near the subways, or how, what would you? We would go from bar to bar. Oh, bar to bar. Bar to bar. That was, that was awesome. Bar to bar. What's that, Queens? Whether, whether it was like that in Manhattan or Brooklyn, Bronx, I have no idea. But in Queens, that was, that was a hustle. And another hustle, some kids snuck into stadiums. We would basically, I would tell you, Delwood was the Yankees, milk, milk container, and Dairy Lee was Mets. We would go through the garbage cans and cut out the coupons, and we would get like three, four, five, six games apiece. As kids going to everybody's garbage. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that's how we got our tickets to go see games. 
So I mean, you would go we through like the garbage, little, cut little, out the coupons? Yes. And we were like little entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At 10 years old. But that's the only way our fathers, and we were, they would take us to games very seldom. Right, right. So that was the only way, without stealing, getting into games, you know. Wow. Between the laundromat, money, milk containers, and the shoe shining. And basically at 14 years old, I had my first job. Actually 15 years old, I was told by an Italian deli owner at Newtown High School, I was working, I was doing PM shift the second year. We started early, I was home at 12 o'clock every day. So I would go into the deli on the way home, and he pretty much said, we're doing home so early, kid. I said, this is the time I get home from school. And he said, oh, in his Italian accent, he said, oh, no, great, you start tomorrow. I said, what do you mean? I'm not doing for a job. No, no, you, you start tomorrow. I'll call your father. Where, where's your family? What, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm not looking for a job. You start tomorrow. Next day, I had a job in Italian deli, 15 years old, <laughs> after school. So you weren't looking for a job. He just told you He told me I to start show tomorrow up. because I had too much time on my hands after school. Now, how? what was it like working in the Italian deli? Were you able to eat? Did you have access to good food? Or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And cold cuts. Frozen stuff. I mean, we ate outside. But he had a, basically, he used to call me Derek. He could never get my name right, Darren, and I couldn't change it. My name was Derek, and he paid me in cash. So there was no checks to sign or anything. And he used to call everybody a lilac. And I found out later on, it's an Irish flower. He would tell people, he would tell people like, lady, stop talking, you're a lilac. And he would turn to me and goes, hey, Derek, my, my name, uh, obviously. Right. A lilac is an Irish flower that does nothing, has no purpose. <laughs> And you call everybody a lilac. Oh, now was um, so. Where was the was the deli? Was the Italian deli in Queens? Right down the street from my house in Jackson Heights. Jackson Heights on the corner of 80th Street and 37th Avenue. Was was the guy 81st Street? I'm sorry. Did you know if he was affiliated with the mob? Um, he always met me. Always joked around about having people bumped off if he wanted. But uh, <laughs> he lived in Flushing. He was an old timer. He's probably in his late 60s then. And he lived a long life. From my hear, he's, he passed away a few years ago. But um, was he a good boss? Yes, he, he was very tough. But he, he he was very lenient. Tough at first, but he had a caring heart. Yeah, they would give you second, third chances. We have a friend Tony that I, I got him a job there, and we our thing we would go to the bank and deposit money once a week, and cut in between trips and just hang out and have coffee, soda, you know, something. Right. To eat. Right. And our friend Tony. The good Samaritan he is, he cut the time in half. He ran back to the boss, got the pat on the head, and we were told, hey, Derek, what are you, will I lock? Why can't you come back right away like Tony does, the good kid? <laughs> the friend that I got a job, so I had my So he's my making you look back. My, my short breaks were over. I would have to get yeah. money back from the bank like, like him. Uh, but a little things like that were great memories. Yeah, yeah. And basically, he hired a lot of kids in the neighborhood. Well, that's good, uh, and so you, he so he passed away, and that deli yes, is no yes, longer yes. no longer in existence. No. Um, okay, so then, so then you did you take um, did you take the fireman test? Did you take the police test? I took my sister took the test. I guess when she was twenty, and I was a little. I think I was a year too young then. So basically, I had one job uh, actually in a shoe store and maybe 15 years old. And after that, that basically, a few odd jobs, but right before the ironworkers test, I was 16 years old. There's another nutty story. My father came home one day, 
threw papers at me. He goes, kid, go down to the unemployment. I said, why? I, how, do you, how do you work? <laughs> I did in your name. He goes, go down to unemployment, you'll be getting about $315 a week at 16 years old. Really? Wait, he worked in, under your name? In my name because he was in between jobs. So he worked in my name because he was getting a check somewhere else. Whatever, right. whatever he was doing is not my business. Right. But he just wrote it. Like, what kid turns on that kind of money? And I couldn't <laughs> believe I was deciding whether to go down or not. But I went down, my beach clothes on, a gold chain, a hat, baseball hat. Right. They made me come back six times after that because they didn't believe at my age, how can I be making so much money <laughs> that half my salary is $315 a week? <laughs> a, a kid like me with, with right. beach clothes on. Did they eventually give it to I you? I got a nice fat check for, for about $1,900. Really? When I finally got the first check, they wow. put me the ring, but my social security number, my name, everything, everything yeah. matched up, and they could—they had no choice but to pay me. But I probably shouldn't have came down right before I went to the beach, right, right. looking at them with a smile right. when my salary probably matched their salary working <laughs> full time. I, I didn't know any better. But ever after that, I got a local five eighty. Another thing, my father said, "Go take the test." Why? Because I told you to, and I passed. Right. I got a little help, but I, I still passed with, you know, I was pretty good with taking tests and stuff like that. Even that police department test later on, at 28 years old, I scored 98 with two hours sleep out drinking the night before. But without military background, they just started putting one, two, and three bands together, a lottery system. So by the time I got through the education part, I didn't get hired because probably my age and, and it was a lottery, even though I scored high. Right. But I stayed in the local 580. I was just a career change I thought about. And basically, that was my only stint with the police department. My sister's a retired cop. I kind of worked with her doing, believe it or not, confiscation work. People selling handbags in Manhattan. I was off, well, in between jobs when things were bad in the 90s, in the 90s, 1990s. Um, what was that, the early 90s when it was that recession? Yes, like right, right during the bomb, 92. the first World Trade bomb. Yep. The Trade Center yep. bomb, yes. And basically it was $21 an hour off the books with a law firm that we went around chasing street vendors. Believe it or not, I was, a, I was the driver. I would drive up on sidewalks and we had to work with police, retired cops and retired firemen, the lawyer and I was a civilian. Like the witness and I would stage fake so, buys. So someone would pay you, would pay a, this firm? A law firm, yeah, law firm made a lot of money. With Chanel, Champion, Oh, they so Chanel would would pay the law firm, and yes. then the law firm would pay you yes. to disrupt the counterfeit operation. Disrupt the so counterfeit. Like so it's Canal Street, right? Like oh, where, Canal Street, where would you there. go? Canal Street, Fifth Avenue. Basically, we use women as buyers, and they would like tip the hat for us to like come barreling in. And I remember on a few occasions, a lot of women, especially, would, would yell. Rich rich women would yell and scream at us, "Leave them poor people alone! They're just trying to make a living." But under the contract, we read it to the lawyers, I didn't know at the time that they actually lose billions of dollars you know, in counterfeit products, imitating their products. And believe it or not, people with money did most of the buying because they would have legit handbags mixed with the counterfeit to make it look good. They would right. actually do more buying than, than people just making a living. Yeah. Now, what, so... What would you, so just kind of walk us through how this would work. Like you would, someone, you would have a female buyer go in, they tip the hat, and then you guys would come in. So without police, or like what would you do? you just throw up the table? Like I mean, they would, 
they were pretty much asked for Chanel or name brands. Louis Vuitton was really big back then. Chanel was a really big product. And Louis Vuitton started to come around. Um, they would tip the hat that the products were there. Oh no, we, we had, we worked with ex, ex-cops that had that gun in the shield. And firemen that were like six foot four, 300 pounds. Oh, so they would make, they would arrest them? No, no, they would confiscate. Oh, confiscate. But they would resist a lot. They would like threaten to fight back. And one, one guy looked up the shirt and asked my sister to shoot him. I don't know why he did that, but um, basically, uh, people on the outside didn't realize how much money was really being lost on, with counterfeit products. I mean, even to this day, like, like years ago, I, I don't do it anymore, but like I would buy like a hat, a shirt, not knowing where it came from. But, um, but knowing that, what the lawyers told me, I try to stay away from that. I try to, if I can't afford the real product, I just won't buy it. You know? So you, so you were the so you were the car that kind of drove everyone yes. around. Well, the funny story, funny you mention that it didn't start out that way. The first day on the job, I was riding shotgun in the back of an empty empty shell van, as the guy is telling me, "Watch out for the air brakes." Too late, I was flying head first to the front. My hand got caught in the door, and I had fourteen stitches on my hand. Oh, on the first day. Yeah, and being I was off the books, I had a choice: put it on the books and. That's the end of my job off the books. Or basically stitch my hand up with a cast and I was a driver with one hand. So I became the, I call it getaway driver. Getaway, you're supposed to get away. But right. I came barreling in. Right. Whether it's driving on the sidewalk, stopping the shore, backing up, doing 40 miles an hour with the, with the back doors flying open where they come running out like a SWAT team. Right. I was a driver for the next six, six weeks. So then when you- It was, it was fun. It was, it was, it was, it was my introduction to the police work that I would love would have loved to have done if I would have got hired a couple years earlier. And so your sister was doing this. She was, she was retired already. She was retired. Yes. So were there any instances where they would have to call the police, or that you would just confiscate oh, no, the goods and uh, say? Forty percent of the time, police department would, would be called in. I remember on a few occasions that the cops would say, "Well, what are you telling us for? Lock him up." We would say, "No, but." We're fine, man, and he's not even anything. Right. And they were looking at us like, you have them all pinned to the ground, what are you asking us to lock them up for? They didn't realize we weren't cops. Right, right. So, right. so we have a few rookies puzzled, like, not knowing what to do. I remember chasing a few guys down the street with no weapon. I mean, I, was, I must have been out of my mind. Right. This guy Buster, six foot five, ex LSU linebacker, Ooh. retired bouncer and fireman. He, he finally caught me. He's like, what are you nuts? You know, <laughs> But I, I was the adrenaline, the right, adrenaline right. Yeah. Of, of not hurting anybody, just doing my job. You know, right. they're running away with the with the merchandise, and I had to stop. And I was a driver; I had no business running running down the street with a cast on. You know, right. But um, yes, it was it was it was very interesting work. You would never know a million years that 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 exists. Right, a law right. firm, and they get paid very wealthy, very very hefty by these firms, Chanel and all these big corporations. And were, so were you guys moving the needle? Were they happy with what you were doing? Oh, yes, because, because out of some leniency, out of some people that we actually let them keep the merchandise, it wasn't my call, it was the law, law firm's call, they actually kicked it upstairs and, and gave up some big buys, some big warehouses that had millions of dollars stored merchandise. And they would be, I wasn't allowed on those. Those are raids with, with the police department and the lawyers. They would go bust the main. Oh, main so they house. went up. They went up yes, the yes. funnel, the chain, yes, to, keep, to keep their action going. They would, they would give, they would give up locations. You know. Wow. 
Um, so were there any other um, side hustles that you did throughout the years similar to that? Um, basically, that was that was one, one thing. And uh, I worked for 814. It was a movers union. So after work, I basically, as an iron work, I would leave at 2 o'clock, 2.30. And from 5 o'clock on to like maybe midnight at times, 8.14, they used to hire people for night shift because they were so busy. And we get differential, but we get like time and a half to start. That lasted for about four years, and then people got wind. They didn't get wind, but when the work started getting slow, people were fuming because they're working all day for regular time. But with these guys coming in at time and a half from, oh, another, from another job. From another job. And I only did it because it was extra work, and nobody else can do it. Was it what you were moving? It was a moving company? Yes. My, yeah. my friend's was, his father was the president. So it was kind of easy to get work there. But like I said, I want to do that when, when, when they, as needed. And even in my own union, Local 580, we have a lot of firemen that, to this day, they, they work on and off in between their shifts. They work as line workers. Right. And the right thing to do, you're supposed to step down. Things get slow, but the bosses love them because they work so hard because right, right. they're only there a few days a week. That's, so we, we kind of went back and forth with that. But um, as far as hustle... I, I left out one thing when I was a kid. Be, besides the shoe shining and this laundromat and, and stuff like that, we also cut out coupons. Basically, my, my first job in the de- in Italian deli, Ralph, mm-hmm. would have us sit in the back of the, back of the store, the Sunday paper. The, the coupons are very big on Sunday. And we have us cut out the coupons, thousands of dollars worth of them, and he would send them in as, as if the customers would actually use them. It was a fraud. <laughs> I'm 15 years old, committing fraud under this Italian owner, owner's direction, smiling, at, waving at all the customers coming in, and I'm cutting out thousands of dollars worth of coupons. Finally, years went past. He didn't get busted, thank God. Finally, these big corporations, uh, Procter & Gamble such, and such like that, they would put out like la-di-da um, milk products. Right. Didn't exist, but if you send the coupon in, they would come investigate your store, saying, "Who sent this coupon in? Doesn't exist." So that's how they started uh, busting these, these they stores. Started busting, yeah. The big so million dollar fraud, million, million dollar, multi million dollar fraud. Really? Yes. Not from my store alone, but right in, in, in the five yeah. rooms. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So talk about the. Um, what was it like on the job? The physical requirements when you were in an iron worker, like. Just, just kind of walk us through a day. Like, what was? I'm assuming just from commuting inside this, in and out of the city, I always see like the construction workers. Your day would start very, very early. Yes, when I first started, it was eight o'clock start. Eight to three thirty. You never left at three thirty. You left at three o'clock. But as the years progressed, I would say mid nineties, early nineties, half the union would start at seven, and then now it's across the board. Everybody starts at seven. It's basically, that's our starting time, 7 o'clock. So 2.30, but only the strict companies will keep you at 2.30. Um, 12 o'clock lunch, 12.30. Who can have lunch in a half an hour? It's almost impossible, unless you bring your lunch to work. So basically, at a quarter to 12, people would hit the streets. And it was very lenient back then. I mean, you came back half an hour late, slap on the wrist. Come back a half an hour late now, you get fired. You go to the bar lunchtime now, even though it's your own time, you may get fired. So basically, you're drinking at your own discretion, or you have to wait till after work. And so basically 7 to 2.30, by 2 o'clock, most people leave the job sites now. 
But things are very busy. There's a lot of overtime, from what I see in my friends. Like I said, I've been out 10 years now, so that's basically what I remember, 7 to 2.30. By 2 o'clock, you left. And so um, talk, talk to us about some of the characters that you encountered. Now, you don't have to, you know, if your friend's name was Tim, you can use an alias. You could say Bobby. Don't use their real names, but... Oh, there Bill, any... Billy Hutton on 46th Street. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> My friend Joe will call him. Uh, John... I won't mention his name, but John was a foreman, old Italian guy with a mustache, looked like, like Super Mario. <laughs> I was on a job site, and this was Friday morning. I, we, we used to go out a lot of Thursday nights, all of us. That was payday, it was uni meet night. And my friend Joe, which I won't mention his last name, I'm up on the floor half an hour late. Yeah, where the hell is Joe? I don't know if we can find him. I went downstairs, found Joe sleeping in the cardboard box three floors down. <laughs> I remember kicking the box, telling him, John wants to see you. He doesn't know where you are. I remember him climbing out of the box and me climbing into the box. And I got an hour of sleep. An hour later, I hear screaming, where the hell is Darren? Oh no, John, let me go find him. <laughs> he would come, this went on for months. And, but you didn't get fired. Late 80s, early 90s, you got threatened all the time, but you didn't get fired as long as you didn't get caught stealing or punching anybody. That was an all. I mean, they, they rather insult you and berate you than fire you. Why, so why wouldn't you get fired? Would it be, was it just a leniency or? It was a leniency and they know you were a good worker. I mean, I mean, as long as you showed up and you didn't take too much time off, they'd rather, keep, they'd rather deal with that. And then we give them stories to tell themselves. Then, then hire, go to the union hall and get anybody that gets sent out have to be, having to be retrained. Right. Now you need so many licenses and, and, and certificates that you're actually, even though you're part of a union, it's actually, you're actually an independent contractor. You're actually almost incorporated by yourself. You represent yourself, you're part of a union, but you actually represent yourself because you need all those licenses and certificates in today's current way of doing things in, the, in job sites. And what, the union doesn't want to pay for those licenses and certificates? Oh, they, they pay for it, but you, it's, man, it's almost mandatory coming out of the apprenticeship that you, you become a certified welder and such. I didn't have to be a certified welder. I was a great welder. I just never got my certification. I was starting to get my licenses when I got hurt in 2008, but under the current few licenses I do have, even though they, they expired, if I was still working today, I would be considered in a minority where it would be hard to get good employment if I didn't keep those up to date. And now, so out of the guys that you started with, like what, what's a typical, when would someone retire? Would it be after 20, 25 years, 30 years? They, they, they tinkered with it, they switched it on and off, but back when I first got in, it was, if you were 55 years old and had 30 years in the business, you could retire with a full pension. Social Security, that, that all depends on what, how old you were, whether it's 67, 65, but you had to be 55, in 30 years and you had to your full pension, or 58 and 25. They since tweaked that a little bit where you have to be a little bit older. But back when I started, as long as you, had, as long as you were 55 years old with 30 years in the business, vested years, you can retire with a full pension. And, and full medical for life. Well, that's pretty good. So how is the, is the union still, <clears throat> is it still strong today? Yes, so strong. I mean, there's a lot of givebacks, a lot of uh, years ago, when you walked down the street, even as little as when I first got hurt 10 years ago, you looked up and saw a crane, you was 100% union in Manhattan. Now it's 
roughly 69 to 68 percent. There's no guarantee it's going to be union. There could be a non-union crane, non-union engineer running that crane, which makes the rest of the job prevailing wage, which in my eyes is non-union. Prevailing wage give, still gives the boss a bid high and give a lot of money right to the, the employer, employee, I'm sorry, employee, but without the, without the full benefits. And they're saving about 40% salary. And the employees are happy that basically some of them are barely trained, making $36 to $40 an hour, where they're basically probably in the country maybe five, six years. Mm -hmm. I, don't know, I don't know the status, but to make that kind of money, not having any skill whatsoever, that, that's, that's a pretty good salary. Now, there are no rules and regulations as to like job sites using union workers? Oh, sure. Like the last, I would say the last seven, eight years, there's been multiple accidents where whether you work in prevailing wage, non-union, union, the rules all across the board have to be certified by the same scaffold division. They have to the same scaffold license, safety license, burn, burning license, welding certificate, fire watch. All across the board is very strict. You have to have those licenses even to be on the job site, whether it's non-union, prevailing wage, or 100% union. Right. So, and I'm assuming if they don't have that, there are huge fines. Oh yeah, the bill, the builders or the contractors get fined heavily. Now they I, don't want to push them for it because they they don't want to lose money. Now I've I was probably going a couple of years back. It was Midtown Manhattan when one of those cranes fell. Did you read about that? Yes, I was one of many, one of like three or four, but one one huge one in Midtown. Yes, where a few people died. Um, I remember working on one job, Diamond, well, I won't mention names, but, well, Diamond Erectors, they, they, they were found not liable. I don't want to say anything about that, but a few pins were taken out of the crane, and a crane tipped across the street, crashing through a hotel window, killing an old elderly woman. And Wait, when you say a few pins were taken, why well, were pins? They, they were taking pins out to make it easier to slip the curtain wall in, and they were supposed to put the pins back. Oh, I don't know the full scale of the of the accident, but from what I was told, even though I was on the job site, what I was told, they weren't put back, and the weight and the wind caused the, the crane tower to, to, to let loose and fall across the street. And you're talking about tons and tons of steel oh, yes, careening yes. into... Yes, and, and and like I said, I, I, would, I know I already mentioned the company name, but they were held not liable, whether... Lawsuit happened after that. I'm sure they did, but it would have been pretty big if they were held liable because it was right around the time, 10 years ago, where it tilted the scale, where if you drop the panel or if you if it was neglect, there is no more accidents. You are held liable in criminal, criminal negligent homicide if you are trained, a trained worker and you're supposed to secure something and you purposely didn't do it to save time and money. And no more accidents where there's only a lawsuit involved. They actually bring up, bring up on criminal charges nowadays. And there's a criminal charges against the company or the worker? The, the company, but worker individually, if, if he's properly trained and, and totally disregards safety. And so he's got to be negligent, basically. Oh, oh gross yeah. negligence. It's got to be like, I know it's wrong. People can get hurt or die. Right. And they don't do it anyway. Right, right. Or, or they do it anyway to avoid safety and, and totally avoid safety. Um, it, tr it trickles down, but for a worker to get held criminal negligent homicide is very rare, but it does happen. But definitely the, somebody within the company can be brought up on charges if somebody dies or gets hurt, hurt 
badly as a result of gross negligence, where years ago it was only an accident. Right. And, and lawsuits, that's all it was years ago. And, and that, that could be also true if someone um, put on a, a window plane, pane wrong and it went careening yes. down onto the street and killed sure five that. people. Like, like I remember times where we would drill a hole to hold a big panel in and there was no filling in the concrete and workers would put caulking on it and say that that would hold you know, 80 mile an hour winds 40 stories up in the air. Uh, I don't think glue was going to hold a 600 pound panel in. And nowadays, they, 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 they had supervisors on top of supervisors that making sure that the job's done properly. For the most part, we were, we were all well-trained and jobs did get done. I would never cut corners to uh, avoid safety. Right. Now, um, so talk to us about, you know, uh, go, going out to work in all types of weather, right? So. Just because it's cold out doesn't mean that you, you're you stopping the job site, right? No. So what were, what were some brutal like brutal days, cold, wind? Do you have any uh, memory of that? Well, I remember working in Battery Park City on scaffold. We're working on one corner. Let's say, for instance, 10th Avenue and 42nd Street. I would end up on 42nd Street facing the water. The wind would swing the scaffold around the building almost, going for a ride. And that's what 60-degree winds, we had totally shut the job down, should have been. Nowadays, that's what they would do. They shut the job down. Um, Wait, when do they shut, shut the job down? Over how many? Over certain, certain miles per hour. It could be as low as 35, 40 miles an hour. It all depends on how high the job is and, and, and basically, when you shut the crane down or when you shut the elevators down, the outside hoist they're called, basically trades still work. We, we still worked if we were only working on the ninth floor, but that's very dangerous. The fire department can't get up there. If you get hurt, by the time you get to the ambulance, things can get worse. So basically if the crane and elevators are shut down, nobody's supposed to be working, technically. But um, in my union, unless you negotiate a certain part of your, there is no contract. A certain, certain part of your, your pay or your, with your boss, if you don't work, you don't get paid. You only, only get paid holidays if you're a foreman and even that's negotiated. So basically, um, that was the hard part about, about uh, bad weather. We get show up time, two hour show up time. And if uh, it's bad weather, you get sent home two hours, you know, do that two or three times a week, you have a very short paycheck. So what, what about if it's just raining or snowing, but the wind is not that bad? Are you still working through that? Uh, not if you're working on a scaff or any party outside, probably not. Um, they, some, some bosses and companies, they develop, in, they save inside work for, for either half the crew or maybe all the crew. It all depends on the size of the job. But they'll try to keep in, inside work to keep the men happy. But back in the day, 80, 85 to 93, when, when things like, before it got bad, 90, 92, even afterwards, when things started picking up again, you didn't mind because it was so much overtime that if you if you stayed home on a Tuesday or Wednesday, you you kind of welcomed it. You, you stopped, get something eat on the way home. You took a night, you took a nap. You picked up your kids, your spouse, and you were working on Saturday or nights, make up for the difference, you know. But um, basically, with the bad weather, the, the, the most most local 5 a.m. workers, if, if it was bad weather, if it was outside work, you got sent home. 
Now you see a lot of people with ring gear. I mean, in, the, in my time, if it rained and they gave you ring gear, you would throw it back and say, well, keep your ring gear, I'm going home, you know. Guys didn't want to work in the rain for safety reasons. Or there'll be funny stories where you'd be working like a dog in the rain to unload a truck only because the truck came from Pennsylvania or, or even further. But you would have a strict boss that would send you home in the rain two seconds if it was drizzling. Right. So finally a good shop so would, would get wind of that and not say nothing until the truck came and say, everybody go home. <laughs> you can't, the truck's here. We're going home. See you tomorrow. Right, right, right. And the, the truck driver had to stay in the hotel, triple time for the crane operator. Oh, really? The whole nine yards. A few people got laid off. But with that, we, we, with that uh, rebel, rebellious um, act, right. they stopped doing that. The bosses stopped sending you home and drizzling. Right. Light rain, they would they would keep you working, right. or they would work with you. Like, listen, we we won't do that to you, but don't ever leave us with a truck on the loading dock again. Right, right, right. So we we, we learned to work, to to work together. Work together, yeah, yeah. Just like like I would see guys that come to work with coffee and roll. Ten minutes late, whistling up the stairs. Right. There's no, it's a no no. My father, even my father taught me, if you're three minutes if you're three minutes before the day starts, right. you're technically late. Right, right. Don't come. Don't come to work five minutes late with coffee in the end. Right, right, right. Because those are the first people, in my experience, that would, that would run down the stairs when it's time to go home right. and leave the boss stranded. Right. And I don't care if it's union, contract or not. Right. I would try to teach the guys, especially younger guys, listen, give and take. We stay three minutes late, ten minutes late, we don't get paid for it, we're going to leave early tomorrow. Right. Don't, yeah, don't, don't hit them with the union contract because right. you're the first one on the layoff list. When they see you with the roll in your hand and the coffee, yeah. and you're ten minutes late. That. They remember it like a cat. Right, and, right. You know, <laughs> and they would cry, oh, what'd you leave right. me for? Darren's always late. Throw me right out the bus. <laughs> um, good old times, good old times. Yeah. So did you, uh, did you love what you did? Oh, absolutely. If I didn't love what I did, even though I loved what I did, I couldn't stay on a job site or a company more than a year and a half. A year, I think a year and two months was my longest run with a company. It would just grow on me. Right. You know, I mean, even my wife, I got divorced and remarried to her. That, right. That's how much I can't stay with the contract for that long, you know. <laughs> As you know, John. Yeah. Right. Um, but the bosses, the companies will always rehire me because I would always push that limit where we started disliking each other, where I would leave before the, the, boil, the, the pot started boiling over. They, they always rehired me because I was always an excellent worker. And did you, so I'm assuming that you formed lifelong relationships with some of your co-workers. Oh, sure. I mean, I have co-workers now that some are older, that's 58 years old, they don't have enough time, they're still working. I mean, they admit to me that they're throwing darts at my picture in their living room because I'm 53 years old, retired with a full pension, social security, annuity, you know, right. homes in three different states. Right. Not rich by any means, but right. I, I put together a good enough annuity and worked a long time right. to, to, to have these things. I mean, if I wasn't retired, could I help my kids and do these things? No, absolutely not. But these are a lot of lifelong friends I had growing up. Some are retired, some are not. But for the most part, they're, they're happy they're still working. As much as they envy me being retired, they like the fact that they meet in the shanty in the morning, have coffee and chalk around, and those are the days I miss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, Darren, we're going to wrap this up. Is there anything else that uh, we didn't cover that you want to go over? Um, as far as being an iron worker, um, yeah, just 
there's a lot of things, but one thing I do really miss, companies in general would hold Christmas parties every year. And you would do absolutely nothing on Christmas Eve. Some days now, I heard they're strict, that they actually make you work half a day. Back in the day, they would like tear the job apart if they make any bit of work Christmas Eve. But we would have the union party and the company party like within the same week, like within 10 days before Christmas. And it was absolutely, everybody looked forward for that. I don't care what religion you were from, you enjoy the Christmas parties. Even if you didn't drink, you, you had the food, whatever. Guys got bonuses. I was never a big bonus guy because I was a union guy. I wasn't at the top where I was president or anything. I never became a company guy. I was always bouncing around. And, but I loved it. I, I loved those parties. And that's one thing I miss. Hopefully one day I can go back and I start visiting those people, you know, a couple times during the year, especially at, around the holidays. That, that I really miss. Okay, great. All right, Darren. Well, thank you so much for... Well, thank uh, you for having me. For being on the Working Experience Podcast. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And I hope I didn't break any laws, by the way. <laughs> you might have. <laughs> okay, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the Still Believe app, which creates HD videos of your favorite holiday characters in your home. Simply take a picture on your phone, and they create the magic. We have Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Definitely check it out on stillbelieve.co. It's also available on the App Store and Google Play. Okay, thanks, everyone.